Well, there's only one way to know for sure if I'm ready. Where is that candle at? The candle's here. It's lit. Burning bright. All right. <laughs> Welcome to the Eternia Review. My name is Ben. And I'm Truman. And we're uh, going through week by week, episode by episode, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And this week is an interesting episode. <laughs> Brought to us by our favorite villain, Evil Lynn, in Evil Lynn's plot. Uh, you say interesting. Do you have some more descriptive thoughts about that? We'll get to it pretty quick. It is problematic in one big way. There's like one big problematic thing. And also it's just a fever dream of an episode. Well, the fever dream opens, as mine usually do, with this really upbeat, I described it as summary music, like the season, as we pan across the countryside. There's this forest that um, I don't know how to describe it other than to say if you decided to become a master woodcarver and were carving large shavings off of a block of wood you have these thin curly q kind of wood shavings that fall off someone took a big collection of those and planted them as a forest it's kind of this green background with these weird curly trees that we pan over that was a very poetic description and it, it worked really well in the idyllic landscape they pan over to like a little fortress which we don't know it's little because we don't have a sense of scale yet but it's a little fortress a small child, it looks like, walks back and forth on the castle wall, watched by a droopy-looking person. Yeah, pretty droopy. So it's Screech. Now it's Squinch? Squinch. So there's Squinch, the guard upon the wall with his oversized helmet patrolling, and Kando, the overseer. And then Laura, the only one of these folks that seems to have their head on straight. Yeah. The rest of them are kind of blobbly and askew. Kendo is checking in and squinch. So, okay, I have to pause here. You had a supposition that the ridiculous names in He-Man are like normal names that they just take one letter and add or remove or change. Like our old friend, Pangus Angus. Pangus Angus. Tell me about the name behind Squinch. Squinch. <laughs> uh, Squinch. I don't know if you can change just one letter. Can I go for a whole, like, sound? Like the squa? Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, Squeeve? As in Steve? We're going with Steve. Uh, nope, that one's too far. Yeah, Squinch is just a little too... It, I, it's a ridiculous name. But Squinch notes when Kendo is checking in that it is... Quieter than a flea's hiccup. It's pretty quiet. Which is an incredible expression. Yeah. But these are the widgets. The widgets. Skeletor observes them from atop his purple cat, Panthor. So can we address widgets? Yeah. Which is, in the tradition that we just talked about, one letter off from the <laughs> word midgets. All right. I did not put that together. That's that's the problem. That's the problematic problem right there. I thought it was sort of cutesy because these creatures are sort of cutesy, but yeah. I mean, widget's a real word, and they're like, I would say widgety. They're like if what a widget is nowadays, like they evoke something small and cutesy is what a widget sounds like. But I don't know. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I mean, it's they are little people. They're clearly to scale of their castle. They're small. And they're like Looney Tune characters and how kind of silly and goofy they are. So perhaps some problematic stereotyping we have going on. Yeah, a little bit. Definitely a product of its time. Yeah, the easy out that you give to stuff like this. It's true. You do. Well, you, you kind of have to. It's better than the Asian character they had for like two scenes in that one episode. Yes. How can we forget Jitsu? Jitsu, is that his name? I don't even remember. I feel like that was more egregious, but this is more prevalent through the episode. And there's only one girl. Who is the girlfriend of Squinch. She takes care to remind Squinch as he's guarding the wall. He seems sort of oblivious to the fact. So Skeletor is observing them. He says, you know, okay, there's all the widgets down there. In just beautiful Skeletor fashion. I don't even know what this name means or why. All right, my luckies, in the name of destruction! (laughs) Skeletor has two intensely metal scenes in this episode, and that is definitely one of them. In the name of destruction. Like, I can see Skeletor opening a concert exactly that way. (laughs) Yeah. Got the giant flames behind him. Throwing up the devil horns. Mm-hmm. About to slam his bony fingers down on his axe. Which is shaped like a skull. How could it not be? Yeah. Skeletor apparently needs something from the fortress, which will help him defeat He-Man once and for all. This is when Laura, in a white dress, approaches Squinch and declares that she is his girlfriend. And Skeletor attacks. Which freaks out Squinch. And Laura has the presence of mind to say, hey, we should sound the alarm. Which they do. Beastman and Merman go to scale the wall. Squinch is again confused about what to do. And Laura pours some grease down the wall, causing them to slip and fall. Which is the best pun of the week. Where Squinch turns to Laura and says, Oh, I don't even know. Because the same voice actor as He-Man, but he's doing a weird Looney Tunes voice. Like, hey, that was pretty slick there, Laura. And like winks. That was a candidate for... Best worst joke mm-hmm. for me as well. We also get some more Looney Tunes action. Panther, who has, I don't know, jumped up on top of the wall, goes to leap at Squinch and Laura, but they duck, and Panther sails over their heads directly into Beastman and Merman, who had recovered from their slip and scaled the wall again. They all go down. So the, the Keebler Elves really have like the He-Man tactics down right now. Like they're doing a pretty good job defending the fortress. Which I suppose is uh, stay out of the way and let the bad people just screw themselves up. Yeah. Skeletor berates his underlings, which he does a lot this episode. Oh yeah, he lays into him this episode. It's awesome. Starts zapping the gate of the fortress and here... It doesn't explode, but these huge dents form from the other side. So this is when they light the He-Man signal? So like a, they fired a cannonball in the sky? It is like a small, stubby cannon. They load a round metal ball into it, shoot it into the sky. It explodes, and then somehow a big red symbol appears and hangs in the air. Yeah, the big old German cross that He-Man has on his chest piece. 
shows up. Oh, I didn't see that. The proportions are weird, though. It's, like, much fatter. Yeah, it, it didn't look quite, even like the one on He-Man's chest. It was, like, blown up or engorged or turgid. Mm, other words. <laughs> yeah, one of those. A turgid iron cross <laughs> lights well, the sky. I am not the only one bitten by the poetic urge tonight, Ben. <laughs> Actually, I do have, there was some bit. Oh, yeah, it co- it's coming up. I have another little poetic bit. It comes up. This is when we get to see Adam and Cringer for the first time. Yeah. So they're just like out for a stroll, going to find a place to smoke some herb. And we come across the scene. This is my poetic bit. A serf wearing only a fur loincloth, toiling, beseeching his oxen, a slow toe, to make it up a hill. A snap chain. A timely rescue. What would we do without you, He-Man? That is beautiful. Thank you. I just snapped myself. I want to point out (laughs) Truman was not snapping me. Those were my snaps. I was just too taken aback by the <laughs> grandeur. Prince Adam sees this situation, realizes that he has to help, and takes the opportunity to do the full transformation sequence. Yeah. Full on sword to the sky by the power of Grayskull. I have the power. Meanwhile, there's a cart rolling down a hill. So they even cut to you in the middle of the transformation, as if to say to the viewer, okay, this is cool. This is the thing He-Man does, but hey, remember... I did not. I did not notice that. What would that guy, have, that little kid, what would he have done if He Man hadn't been there? His whole life would have been ruined, right? He has no shirt. He's wearing no shirt. Like it, it can't be like that hot out, right? That it's more comfortable to go around wearing only your fur underwear. We see those space shots in the opening of many of the He Man episodes. There are a lot of celestial bodies floating around Eternia. And I'm sure this is one of those many suns situations. Think of the sunburn you would get from all of those things if you were going oh, shirtless. God. So this dude can't even afford a shirt on his back. He's down to his last oxen, his last cart. He's going to sell whatever wares he's got in town because he's got to feed the rest of his family. They're all sick with the Eternian flu. And if he man would spend more time fixing the actual problems of Eternia rather than fighting Skeletor, you know? The Cirque would have a better life. Yeah, or if Orko would operate a soup kitchen or something with all of those gigantic cakes he can make. At least a couple days a week, you know? But the villager thanks He-Man, who sets off, and they finally see the cross signal floating in the sky. So He-Man runs off to the rescue. Skeletor has zapped through the castle wall, and Merman and Beastman go to corral the widgets. Here's where we learn what Skeletor is really after. It's the Corridite. Which they keep deep in their mind for some reason. Skeletor threatens the widgets for the Corridite. They try to resist, but Skeletor is about to sick Panthar on them. Is it Panthar or Panthor? Because you keep saying Panthar, and I always thought it was Panthor. Oh, I might just be wrong. (laughs) You can't even Google that. How do you pronounce Panthor? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, how is it spelled? P-A-N-T is Panthor. Then I'll have to go in and edit all of those A's to O's so I don't look like a... Can that thing do it? Can you just, or you just overdub it? Just say Panthor a bunch of times and then <laughs> just go in and interstitch it? If that didn't sound like a ton of work, that would be really funny to do. <laughs> you just have a normal... like, And then Panthor <laughs> jumped over the wall. So He-Man and Battlecat arrive to stop Panthor. Mm. <laughs> He-Man tosses Merman into a tree. 
grabs Beastman by the whip and tosses him also into a tree. He says, oh, we're playing Snap the Whip or something. It's like, what? Is that a game? Yeah, I had noted that comment, too. I don't know where that came from. Okay, so there's layers here. Snap the Whip is an 1872 oil painting by Winslow Homer. Depict- oh, it depicts a group of children playing Crack the Whip. So this is what I think Snap the Whip has done. The simple outdoor children's game that involves physical coordination. Oh, I've played this game. Usually played in small groups, either on grass, ice, whatever, usually grass. One player is the head of the whip and runs around in random directions. The subsequent player is holding onto the hand of the previous player. The entire tail of the whip moves in those directions, but with much more force towards the end of the tail. So you all hold hands, and the first person runs around, and then whoever is farther down the line of hand-holding gets whipped around more because it's like a whip. Gotcha. (laughs) Wikipedia says, there's no objective to this game other than enjoying (laughs) the experience. Yeah, thanks for that (laughs) clarification. I have never played that game before. I'm pretty sure I've played this game before, like summer camp or something. Meanwhile, Skeletor is zapping He-Man. He-Man continues to do an excellent Jedi impression and deflects the zaps with his uh, sword of power. He makes a baseball reference here. Anything you can pitch, I can hit, which I guess could be cricket too, depending on where Marlene is from. There was actually kind of a lot of eroticism in this particular scene. Oh, yeah. Okay, anything you can pitch, I can hit. Uh, just before this, Skeletor says to Merman and Beastman, yeah. Let's take him from both sides. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I didn't even end the whip, too. Said by two <laughs> incredibly muscly, sweaty. Wearing only harnesses and loincloths. So we've talked before about, uh, you know, Skeletor and He-Man are all perhaps masters of the universe. What do you do when you have immortality and infinite power? You sort of play games with one another. Mm. Maybe the games have a slightly different meaning, and this is just long-form flirting. It really is. It's all part of the foreplay. He-Man is not quite ready to give it up. and Oh, no. You can't. You got to play hard to get. Deflects one of the zaps into Skeletor's ship, blowing it up. So this defeats Skeletor. Because now he's decided he's done and teleports away, yelling about how I'll get you. I just need a little more power, He-Man. But if he can teleport this whole time, why does he ever drive anywhere? He's teleported before and I never thought about this. Like, he flies places, but he can teleport. Does he ever teleport to places or is it always back home to Snake Mountain? I think it's mostly back home. Did he teleport into, like, the throne room on the moon when he showed up to confuse the queen of the moon i think you're confusing the teleport with the extremely flashy entrance that he made (laughs) being revealed behind the curtain the whole time you might be right you might be right i don't think we've seen him teleport anywhere besides back home after his plans have been foiled like a return thing where he can only get back to there plus skeletor showy as all heck it's true wants to be seen about town oh yeah He's someday driving out there in his best vehicle. He shows up in style. It doesn't really matter how he leaves. What matters is that first impression. We find out as the widgets thank He-Man that Corridite is what He-Man's harness is made of. And the widgets note that it is too powerful for them to use. So they keep it 
locked away in their mine underground. So it's like something they find as they mine, right? Like it just happens to be down in their mine. So just kind of like keep it down there for safekeeping. But why wouldn't they just give it all to Castle Grayskull? Because there's not that much of it. Instead, they have to guard their fortress. They do apparently have other wealth. We see the mine jewels later on. Yeah, so I guess they would have to guard it regardless. The sorceress used some cordite to fashion He-Man's original harness, which makes him stronger somehow. It like amplifies his powers, what he says. It does seem like they should do something with the rest of it, with everything else that they find. Yeah, like if it, it oddly say has some sort of properties, they could like make some sort of use out of it. Like I'm sure Man at Arms could do something with it at least. Use it to toggle some thingamajigs. Unless it's a situation where they don't trust anyone with the power of the Cordite. Although they have a He-Man signal, so they trust He-Man. And obviously, it, I don't know, this may or may not be the only place Cordite is found. Although if Skeletor is bothering to come here for it, he could find it anywhere. So perhaps they trust He-Man. He seems like he has some kind of moral obligation to help out. Maybe they do see how King Randor treats his subjects and think, does he really need more powerful artifacts? They don't want to give it straight to the crown. I guess regardless, we cut over to Skeletor, who is berating Beastman and Merman while Evelyn looks on and laughs. Yeah, like he's laying into them, like yelling about how they're idiots. He even says morons and like fire comes up out of some like things that are by him <laughs> this is where eva lynn offers her support to steal the corridite yeah she says she can go get it and this is the second time that eva lynn demonstrates her power of disguise there's actually some like genuinely really good voice acting because as she's like she transforms into like this fair maiden and as she's transforming Evelyn is like monologuing about what she's going to do or something, how easy it is going to be to trick them. And like, as she's saying it, her voice is going from like, uh, like Evelyn's voice, like Evelyn. I can't do an Evelyn voice. She sounds like Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle and like slowly transforms it into a maiden voice. And like every word she says, like is slightly more maiden-esque until she's talking completely like a maiden. Yeah, that was, that was really well done. The notable thing about Evelyn's disguise is that in this instance, and when she turned into the old woman who was trying to incite a riot among the villagers in the Creeping Horak episode, same purple and black color scheme. Oh yeah, she keeps the color scheme. She's gotta, gotta keep the motif. So Evelyn turns into a maiden, and she fakes being in trouble by having panthor chaser <laughs> and so like she looks like a damsel in distress and the widgets are taken in by it and they take her in to save her from panthor the widgets fawn over nadira she calls herself mm. while she rests she spins a yarn her family was lost out in the forest she doesn't know what happened to them they're probably dead well the widgets still take that for an answer. They say we're the best hunters. I don't know, whatever. They say that they'll find them. And so everybody but Squinch goes off to try to find Nadira's family. Meanwhile, 
Nadira is looking a little bit sad. So mm. Squinch offers her a gigantic jewel. It's huge. It's massive. She's interested in it. She's into it. And Squinch is doing the red blush all over the place every time Nadira looks at him. He further offers, in order to cheer her up, to let her see the actual mine itself. And we cut to a scene where she's sitting on a literal pile, throne of jewels. Can't be comfortable. Like, it's just a pile of gemstones. Just, like, sitting on them and holding one. It's like, wow. It could be one of those, like, bed of nails situations. If it's pokey enough and it's dense pokes, then maybe it's only mildly uncomfortable. But still, I'd rather stand. Personally, me too. Nadira points to a mysterious door in the mine and wonders what's behind it. Squinch is like, whoa, we can't tell you what that. It's a secret. I can't show you. And, like, she, like, appeals to his, like, courage or something and says, well, surely you're a brave man or something. And he's like, yeah, I am, and opens the door. It's not exactly how it happens, but that's pretty much what happens. It does not take much to trick Squinch. Evelyn immediately goes for the Corridite and transforms back into her true form. The voice acting here is also pretty great because she does what she did before, but in reverse. Because she's talking all the time that she transforms and she goes from the, the high-pitched damsel in distress voice back to hers, which is a little bit of a lower register, but gradually. Talking about voice acting is does not paint a very evocative picture, so you all will just have to go look up the scene yourself, I suppose. Yeah. Evelyn escapes as a ball of fire. She literally transforms herself to a fireball and just rolls out of town. How does a fireball carry things? Does it, like, change form with her? Yes, I suppose it must. <laughs> Easy answer. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, it happened, so yes. Uh, fortunately, though, the good sorceress was not doing anything constructive with her life, like taking a language class or going out on a run. She was, in fact, sitting in front of the television and watched all of this unfold let it get to this point all right well she's got the corridor now i guess i got it involved turns into a hawk and sets off to warn he-man who is just lounging he-man as he-man is just like lounging on the ground doing nothing being he-man the sorceress exposits using uh telepathy instead of like getting him to go to the castle just there's like some little mind circles that come out of her hawk she's in hawk form that come out of her hawk face and like she says words and he means like okay yeah skeletor is at volcano cave i wonder what it is what's going on in that cave we cut over to squinch a squinch not squanch right yeah it's squinch say it so many times that i don't know it becomes meaningless nonsense noise i kept writing screech in my (laughs) notes because i couldn't remember it We cut over to Squinch, who is being berated for allowing himself to be tricked. Uh, But he sort of agrees. Laura actually comes to his aid. She says, how could Squinch have known that Nadira was secretly, I mean, apart from the purple color scheme and the obvious trick, how could Squinch have known that Nadira was secretly evil in? But Squinch says, no, they're right. Like, the Kando's like, well, that's no excuse. Like, this is true. Like, you should not have let anybody in there because it's, even if it was, like, a regular woman, you shouldn't have let her in there. He's like, yep, he's right. I gotta make this right. So Squinch also sets off to Volcano Cave, 
which is the only place that Skeletor could be forging the Corridite into whatever fancy bangle Skeletor is trying to make. Kimian arrives at Volcano Cave and peers at Skeletor from this little cutout in the rock. It's one of those, you can only see He-Man's eyes and like the bridge of his nose as he's spying on Skeletor, who is in the middle of uh, holding the Corridite kind of at the lava, I guess waiting for it to heat up. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know how, about his smithing skills. So he says he's going to make like an amulet out of it, right? Early on in the episode when he's talking to Evil Lynn, yeah. Because that's not really what he ends up making. I guess he sees He-Man's sick harness and thinks, I don't need no stinking amulet. I want something that uh, straps on my muscles. <laughs> Accentuates the pectorals. So while Skeletor is working on his Corridite masterpiece, Evelyn summons a lava demon or a stone demon. It comes from the lava, but it's clearly made of stone. Sends it after He-Man. Well, He-Man had to punch his way out of the wall first, right? Yes, excuse me. The, what, the, the rock monster before the horse has an old attorney and saying, He-Man punches his way out of his little hidey hole. Skeletor goes on some exposition about how he's going to make something that is make him as powerful as He-Man so he can finally destroy He-Man. And then He-Man punches out the wall and says, I'd like to see you try or something. I don't even remember. Something of that that vibe, that ilk. And then Rock Monster. So while He-Man is distracted by the Rock Monster, Skeletor uses the most powerful smithing technique in the universe and zaps the burning chunk of Corridite with his eyeball. Wait, really? Yeah, he's holding it up to his face. I guess both of his hands are occupied, and the zap comes from his empty eye socket into the Corridite. I missed that part. Maybe now you'll revise your assessment of Skeletor as the worst smith in the world. I do. He is now the best smith in the world. I guess technically muscles are still above zaps on the scale of attorney and power, and so I guess normal smithing is still better than zap smithing, but... That's true, yeah, because you would still use muscles. So this is still, you know, second-rate smithing. However, he's he's probably, like, you know, more capable in zaps than the average smith is in muscles. And here Skeletor has a great one-liner. Now I have the power. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so great. Do you want me to set it up so you can do the Skeletor voice? Uh, sure. So after finishing his chest harness, Skeletor has a great one-liner. Oh, I have the power. Yeah, it's incredible. I thought this was for sure going to be the Skeletor quote of the week. It was, it happened so quick. And I was like towards the end. And then it just didn't, there's always more than one Skeletor quote of the week though. That's very true. So the lava monster is throwing boulders at He-Man. He-Man is punching them out of the air. He-Man throws a boulder back at the lava monster. The lava monster tries to pull a He-Man punch, but his whole arm disintegrates. And at this point, Skeletor, now with the added power of the Corridite chest harness, challenges He-Man to a one-on-one -on -one brawl. He goes after all of He-Man's tricks of punches and boulders. 
Evelyn manages to throw He-Man's sword to Skeletor at one point during their brawl. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was like going to be a big deal. Like, oh, snap, he's got the sword. And he kind of just drops it or He-Man gets it back really easily. Skeletor receives the sword from Evelyn thrown through the air or whatever. Skeletor has a line here about like, this is the way it was always meant to end. And then kind of setting up that climax. But then they just sort of like wrestle uh, close together. And Evelyn immediately remarks, oh no, Skeletor's losing. Just like that. And then like, you know, he managed just winning. Just like it's just declared. There's no real like physical evidence of it. He's just winning because they said so. Which if the laws of He-Man work as you've suggested. This is very strong evidence. Perhaps Skeletor has become stronger than He-Man was previously with the addition of the Corridite chest harness. However. So by definition, He-Man becomes more powerful to become the most powerful man in the universe once again. So as Skeletor grows in power, He-Man grows more. Yep. And this is this is the strongest evidence we've had. True. Evelyn is about to even things up. Uh, if I can only cast a spell at He-Man when a rope drops from the sky encircling her waist and arms, uh, immobilizing her. She gets tied up by the Keebler elves, the witches that come to save the day. But it was all of the widgets, right? Like, they all kind of, like, hauled her up with the rope. Yep. Not just uh, Squincher. Yeah, I guess they decided to follow him to help out. Well, Smurf's got to stick together, so. He-Man wrestles the sword from Skeletor. Skeletor tries to throw a boulder at He-Man, but He-Man punches it, grabs Skeletor by his chest ruffles, and rips off Skeletor's chest piece while making a heroic speech. True power comes from inside, from courage, honor, and other things you wouldn't understand, Skeletor. And here we get the next incredibly metal stage act from Skeletor, (laughs) who throws both arms forward up in the air, lightning crackles behind in the background, he gives a yell, and then disappears from the scene. It was very metal. It's like full-on rock and roll situation. And we end by He-Man causing some relationship trouble for Squinch. Something about falling for a pretty face. And he says, well, I'll never fall for or deal with women again. And his girlfriend's like, hey. And then he's like, well, no, like, you never fall for pretty girls again. And he's like, hey. And then it's like, well, yeah, you're pretty. Or you're like one of the guys. And she's like, hey. And then just laughs at his misfortune. He-Man just throws his head back and laughs. And that brings us, I don't know how you're going to pick, Ben, because there is a wealth of stuff that we've learned. I want to go meta here. Sometimes something we think is funny to say when you're younger, it turns out to hurt somebody's feelings without us realizing it. It is important as you grow to come and come to understand how language can affect others to change with the times as those who are different from the norm speak up about what is and isn't okay. And where did this come from in the episode? It was because widgets. Oh, yeah. It's real. It's real world. So if this episode were made today, perhaps that would be the moral. Yeah. I do not know that they were quite so self-aware in the early 80s when He-Man was coming out. No, probably not. Tila makes her surprise appearance 
Yeah, she wasn't even in this episode. What the heck? But is here to give us the moral. In today's story, you saw how the widgets were fooled by Evelyn's disguise. They learned that bad things can be made to look good and why you should always be careful and question everything that doesn't seem right. But it works both ways. And that's why the saying, you can't judge a book by its cover, is so important. What it means is that appearances can be deceiving and you shouldn't judge books or people by the way they look. It's what's inside that really counts. That's nice. Yeah. I like your moral better. So there were not a lot of excruciating puns in this episode. Mm -hmm. There was the, that was pretty slick. Uh, Also, when Eva Lynn gets tied up, the widgets come down and she's threatening to turn them into mice or something. I don't remember. But they say, oh, we'd love to stay, but as you seem to be tied up, and then yeah. they skedaddle. Do you think that counts as a pun? I guess it's not a pun. It does. It's just a, it's a really, it's an exceptionally lazy one. Mm. I think the slick one is probably the best at this. It's a poor showing for an episode with best worst joke, but. It is. I think the slick is definitely the best work joke, also because of delivery. It was mm-hmm. delivered better than the the tied up one. Yep. And this episode is another notch in the Evelyn's a partner and everybody else is a peon to Skeletor because she's, you know, contributes and like shows initiative. And then the other guys just like screw up and get berated for screwing up. And, like she calls him out when she's yelling at them, actually tells him that he's overreacting as usual. Yeah, it's pretty clear in that scene after Beastman and Merman fail to take the widget castle in the first place and Skeletor is berating them and Evelyn is off to the side, like you said. Uh, she's above, just sort of above it and definitely closer in uh, power to Skeletor. And there's a line, when she tells him she he's overreacting, does this count as a pun? Because he says, how else am I supposed to act when I'm surrounded by fools? If you're overreacting, how else am I supposed to act? No, that doesn't count as a pun. Normal language. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> just trying to stretch for a good pun. Yeah, there, there, there isn't one in this episode. <laughs> and the only other thing I noticed is that Beastman can totally climb way faster than Merman. Almost like he was showing off in that yeah, scene. Yeah, he was. Like they started off with Merman climbing the wall at like a regular pace, and then here comes Beastman, like, like sprinting <laughs> up the wall practically. Yeah, does he sort of look back behind him and yeah, stick out his tongue? Yeah. Um, we'll have a surprise segment. Surprise segment. Listener mail. Listener mail. See if you can guess who wrote this. To the editor. I already know who it is. In a recent edition of the Attorney Review, the question concerning heat rays and their function was touched upon. As the physicist in residence, I feel it is my duty to educate the editorial board. Firstly, when a ray is referenced in the context of a weapon, it is often referring to the geometric principle of a ray, which has an origin point, then leaving in a straight line. Rays are often used when referring to electromagnetic radiation of the X and gamma variety. Hold on. That's a lot of words. (laughs) (laughs) So let's parse this out for a second, because knowing our contributor, this is going to be a lot of thick words here that I had trouble parsing. So he's saying... That array in the context of weapon is just like it starts here and goes there, right? Origin point and a straight line, yeah. 
continue on. Okay, so secondly, a heat ray is usually referring to a laser, all caps, that is specifically designed to heat macro objects. This is currently theoretical in our technology, often limited by the medium which a laser had to go through or the length of time needed to ablate an object to damage it. What does ablate mean? Gradually remove or erode from a surface by melting evaporation frictional action to remove body tissue surgically. It's like to take away or remove. So it's probably like to, in this context, to like pummel it and remove material. Though one can safely assume that a traditional sci-fi heat ray is a laser that would be tuned to the microwave range and a laser zap is at the visible or UV range, which I suppose He-Man has evidence of because we see the zaps. And if they were microwaves, we wouldn't see them. Unless there's something particular about the air that reacts with microwave radiation on Eternia. There is a lot of radiation in the atmosphere from all the various elder weapons that have exploded over the day. <laughs> so many. I mean, I don't know what it is that they put into that cannonball that the widgets shot into the sky to create the giant red cross that stayed up there, but it was glowing something fierce. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> so a uh, microwave and laser zap in the visible or UV range. These would be trading off penetration and object scale for energy output as you get into shorter wavelengths. A shorter wavelength like that of the UV or visible range can often electrify metallic or ferrous material by knocking electrons out of position, making plasma out of gas or creating lighting, e.g. your Tesla coils or plasma globes, or more literally, plasma bolts. If I'm understanding that correctly, he's saying, and I'm sure 100% this is what the intended meaning is, is that a rainbow can cause lightning to come out of metal. That you can be electrified by a rainbow if you're in your car. That shining a pretty <laughs> colored light on something can electrocute you. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a reading. <laughs> that is a reading. But uh, he goes on to, like with the zaps in this show, like it's a visible like bolt of energy, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be damaging something by hitting it, right? But if it's metallic or ferrous, it can induct a current in it. Yeah, and I don't know if that like current induction heats things up. I think it does because that's how an induction oven, or excuse me, induction stovetop works. Yeah, it's got a current going through it, so it heats up the material. Yeah, in the metal pot or whatever that you put on top. That makes sense. Uh, do you want to finish off the letter? This also may inform as to why our benevolent masters of the universe may not wear traditional armor. If the main type of projectile weapon he is interfacing with either electrifies traditional armor or heats up organic matter, it may be more advantageous to be able to dissipate heat quickly to have more mobility to dodge. I am your obedient servant, Z. Schmidt. Also postscript, though there are types of lasers that can be used to physically trap objects, optical tweezers trap particles, not two-headed robot dinosaurs. I couldn't begin to fathom what order of energy required to create a lasso of light. Referring to Tila and Man-at-Arms' miraculous invention. The laser lasso. The fucking laser lasso. Uh, not to critique your listening, Z. Schmidt, but if you watch the episode where they create the laser lasso, they do describe a lot of the technology that goes into its creation. You yes. got to turn the knob. Uh, adjust the radioactive uh, output. So there, 
That's all there yeah. is to it. Yeah, there's science words that are going into it. Thank you, Zachary, so much for writing in. It's a pleasure yeah. to read. Yes. Uh, so it's a good point about like why they don't wear actual armor. If it's all zaps and it's all inducing regular armor, then there's no point in wearing it. So from what I understand, armor that would protect against a laser is something that's meant to dissipate the heat from the laser as quickly as possible. Yeah. So I imagine um, smooth, very reflective kind of surfaces. Uh, Do you think that He-Man's rock-hard abs that glisten with sweat are his version of uh, ablative armor protecting against zaps? Uh, Absolutely. And it depends on how much he oils up his pecs in the morning, too. (laughs) Is that the part of the prince adam to he-man transition scene that they leave out yeah yeah he's gotta have cringer bring out the the tub of oil <laughs> he just kind of douses himself in it real quick yeah i mean you gotta protect against the zaps it's mm-hmm. it's not vanity it's just you know safety is there water in olive oil i don't think so because how does like like a vegetable oil or oils react to microwave radiation because microwave radiation activates like in our context, it activates water molecules, right? And that's what's like getting heated up at that specific frequency. Probably get another anger letter from Zach about this one. So what happens if you microwave olive oil? <laughs> yeah, that's got to heat up, right? That or there's different frequencies of microwave radiation. So like it probably could be heated up by a certain level. Well, maybe the olive oil isn't affected by the... Uh, the microwave as much as regular water. Oh, sure. Yeah. This is based off the assumption that oil and water don't mix. Uh, yeah, I, that is scientifically valid, I think. So thank you all for listening. Uh, please email us any feedback or corrections on our scientific understanding or videos of you microwaving olive oil so we can know what happens at hello at attorneyareview.com. I really wanted to work in some closer with the word turgid, but I just can't think of one. So we'll see you next time on the Attorney Review. I can't help it. I love that word for some reason. (laughs)